welcome to Court of Opinion. I'm Eric Dawes. And I'm Mike Stair. All right, man. Well, got some activity on the buyout market. We have some superstars taking a leap, and we'll have everyone's favorite segment plead their case. But first, trade deadline. It was eventful, which is always awesome. Um, NBA trade deadline. Like I said last pod, is my favorite week of the year. Uh, so starting in Orlando. Big fire sale there, part of the trades. Yeah, it looks like Orlando is restarting for seemingly like the 10th time in the last 10 years. But I understand why they make the moves. They obviously aren't going to make the playoffs this year. Aaron Gordon is requesting a trade. Evan Fournier and Vucevic have been there forever. And seemingly having those two guys together in the same team does not contribute to winning basketball as we've seen over the last couple seasons. So if you're Orlando, you totally understand. They got solid return. They got two first rounders back for Vucevic. It seems like every star at this point on the trade market is going to get you at least two first rounders. So good for them for getting the standard return. Um, They got a first rounder for Fournier. I mean, that's not bad. I think that overall they did a good job Um, for the teams that acquired these players. I think that you have to like, the Bulls acquisition of Vucevic the most. The Bulls are in a position right now where they're towards the bottom of the playoff standings, but they're in the mix for a playoff seed in the East. And with how close the teams are together right now, if you can rattle off a winning streak, that could potentially be the difference of maybe four seedings in the East at this point. So, and that can make a really big difference avoiding some of those teams in the earlier rounds like the Nets that you probably won't have much of a chance at beating if they're healthy and at full strength. So uh, for Chicago, you got to love it. They bring another all-star to pair along Zach Levine, their new all-star. For Boston, their acquisition of Fournier, I mean, I really don't love it. I feel like they already are pretty stacked on the perimeter. They have plenty of perimeter guys. That's not the issue. They don't have an interior presence who can consistently score inside. That's the problem. And they don't have a a great interior defender either. Um, And for them to acquire Fournier, I mean, he's not a bad addition to have off the bench, but I think it's just more of the same. And I think they they probably could have um, done better going for a different target. Aaron Gordon to Denver is interesting. I know a lot of people in the media are generally like really loving this move. For me, I don't love the move as much. I felt like the Nuggets were all right on their forward rotation. I thought they had plenty with uh, Porter Jr., Jokic. I really love Bull Bull's upside. Um, Overall, I thought they had a pretty solid power rotation. But I guess you could say he is is an upgrade over Bull Bull and some of those other guys because he's ready to play right now. He does give them a different – a different type of player than what they typically have on their team. He's a very athletic guy. Um, They don't really have too many big elite athlete types. So he does give them another dimension. So it could go either way. It seems like it's kind of redundant to add him, but if you can go ahead and pick him up and try to load up a little bit more for a loaded West, then I I mean, why not? Yeah, I I like all the moves Uh, pretty much for both sides. Honestly, I'd have to disagree with you on the Fournier piece. He comes in, he's now their third leading scorer on the team. So they're bringing in some offensive firepower where they haven't had any outside of uh, Tatum and Brown. 
So I think for Fournier to give up two second round picks, you're really giving up nothing to get a guy who's going to be a microwave off the bench. So I think that that's a, a great addition for them. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of Vucevic, uh, Zach Levine gets a good running mate in Chicago, gets somebody who can do, who can do the pick and pop with. Vucevic can also uh, decently shoot. So it allows the, the Bulls to have um, a bigger center and also uh, just create his own shot. Um, for Aaron Gordon, I think for Denver, it was more of looking at it uh, as why not, like you said, for them, I think they're getting better on defense with having Aaron Gordon there. Uh, and I think, I think we talked about it a lot in the last like two or three episodes when we were theorizing who's going to go and Aaron Gordon obviously requested a trade. Um, I think for Aaron Gordon and the Magic specifically, it really, the breakup needed to happen because he just, it was, it was a log jam with him and Vucevic there. Um, and he needed to go somewhere where he could uh, not be so much of the focus, but more so be one of the ancillary pieces, which I think he now is. And he's going to have one of the best passers in the game now, Jokic, setting him up, uh, which is something that he mentioned he's very excited about. Yeah, honestly, um, I really hope that the Fournier bit works out a little bit better than how it started. He went 0 for 10, zero points in his first game and the Boston fans obviously let them have it. They're not exactly the kindest, but um, moving on to some other deals. I think that we should probably discuss the deal that didn't happen. Kyle Lowry ends up staying put to the surprise of everyone. Um, this one goes down to the wire. Everyone's thinking right up until the deadline at 3 PM that he may be getting moved. There's news that he's going to maybe go to the Lakers news that he's maybe going to go to Miami but it seems that in the end there were just a couple sticking points in what the Heat and the Lakers were willing to offer and it seems the Raptors were more comfortable just retaining Lowry than giving him up for less than what they felt he was worth what did you make of the non-move for Lowry I thought that that must have been the most stressful birthday for Lowry to have, to not know where the heck he's going to be at 3.01 p.m. and then to not get traded anywhere. Um, that's kind of a, a foul move on the birthday front, honestly. Um, anticlimactic, really, really anticlimactic. Can you imagine he thinks he's about to go make potentially a playoff run? He even... <laughs> waves the peace sign to the fans in the last game before this happens basically saying like and all right guys best, i'm out uh, <laughs> and he put up the best plus minus or the second best plus minus in uh franchise history with like plus 44 that night so it was like honestly the perfect ending for that to happen yeah um, it doesn't happen i <laughs> what i think happened is i think kyle said here are the teams that I would go to, but realistically, like, I'm fine staying. And Audrey was like, well, if I have a guy who's not, like, begging me to go and I want to do what's right by him, I also need to do what's right by the team, and I need to try to get as much back as possible. But he also, I think, tried to play Pat Riley and Rob Blinka for fools. Like, why are you going to give up a – guy who's 14 years younger 
who maybe doesn't even become as good of a player as Kyle Lowry, but maybe has a chance and at least will will be on a good rookie contract for the next couple of years uh, versus having a guy like Kyle Lowry who, as great as he is, is going to play for two, three more years. Like, why are you going to mortgage your future on a guy who's going to play two or three more years? So I just think it's a calculated move. I think with some of the deals that uh, you saw throughout the day and then also the deal that you saw Miami end up making, which we'll get to in a second, um, these teams aren't in the business of giving up their entire future when they don't have to to get a star player. So I, I didn't like the um, how valued they felt Kyle Lowry was. Uh, yeah, not to mention, he was going to be a free agent at the end of the year anyway. Any team that was looking to acquire Kyle Lowry long-term really could just wait till the end of the year if they feel he wants to go there, make him an offer then, and not have to give up any assets. Why would you give up two first-round picks and whatever else they're asking for when you can just wait a couple months and get him straight up? They should have known they weren't going to get that back for him. But regardless, it seems that Kyle Lowry and the timing of this deal actually ended up playing into Miami's favor because you have to give it to Pat Riley. I think that they made the deal of the day. The interest in Oladipo was pretty low throughout. Um, it seems that most teams weren't willing to make the Rockets an offer for him because at the very beginning of the trade market, the Rockets GM was coming out with some pretty outrageous demands for some of these players. He wanted like a first round pick and a young player for PJ Tucker, or um, he, I think he wanted maybe two first round picks for Oladipo at first. He was asking for some pretty crazy stuff. Obviously no one was trying to give it. Oladipo is going to be a free agent at the end of the year. And there's no indication that he's going to resign. So no team's going to give up a bunch for that. Not to mention, he is coming off a really large injury and still has to prove that he can return back to that all-star form that he had. So, and he hasn't shown that just yet. So his value was a little bit low at the moment. And it seems that the Rockets, knowing that Oladipo was going to leave them um, at the end of the season, got a last minute call from Pat Riley and were basically willing to accept just about anything because they realized or at least they believed, hey, it's better to get something than nothing at all. And I know it's not much, but there's not much time and it's better than nothing. So I think that Pat Riley, honestly, he, he almost bullied this guy. He pretty much dogged this guy. I know that um, earlier in the trade deadline market, they had been negotiating over some players like PJ Tucker and they were demanding such insane things from the Heat when they were demanding things from for the Harden trade as well. But um Pat Riley comes back, literally gives up only Kelly Olenek, Avery Bradley, and a pick swap. Not even an actual pick, a pick swap for Oladipo. So they essentially acquire him for free. What do you make of the move? I mean, I also think that Pat Riley bullied him. I think that Raphael Stone is trying to be like the poor man Sam Presti and trying to accumulate this treasure trove of uh, draft picks and He's just, he's just not able to do it. Um, I also just don't understand why looking at the James Harden trade, you don't keep Karis LeVert 
or Jared Allen, and you let them go to other teams to get back Oladipo to then sell him at the end for Kelly Olenek, who has been up and down all season. And if you saw Heat Twitter, you know that we, we didn't exactly want him here anymore. Um, and then on the, on, on the A.B. Radley side, Avery Bradley's a good player, like, five years ago. So, Avery Bradley has barely played this year. You also saw the Heat make a trade uh, earlier before the deadline for uh, Nemanja Bielke, um, where it was another similar situation. We trade Mo Harkless, who is pretty much not played all year. Um, and who else did they trade? Chris Silva and Chris Silva, who hasn't played also. So you trade two players who haven't played for another. And then the same thing with Myers Leonard. Trade Myers Leonard, get back Trevor Reza. So you get three impact players for uh, five players, three of which haven't played or aren't playing. Like those are amazing deals to make because those other guys have zero impact on your game. So you're only getting a net positive from those impact players when you look at it from a one-for-one one, uh, between who they traded for. And yeah, yeah the swap, keep... the, if the Heat are going to be in contention um, and the, the Rockets give them their pick, like I, I just don't see the Rockets pick being any better or even any worse than the Heat, so the pick swap is negligible. Yeah, honestly, you have to give it to Pat Riley. He has been um, definitely the front office staff member of the year. The trades that he has made have been flawless. You, he, he wins the day for the Heat, and the Rockets easily lose the day. But going into the actual fit of Oladipo himself in Miami, we have to look at what this addition actually does for the team because this one actually could be a really interesting addition. One of the reasons why this addition is so great for the Heat is because Victor Oladipo is a player that they've already had long-time interest in, but have been kind of reluctant to go after and pursue in a trade and give up big assets for because there's still a lot of question marks surrounding Oladipo. He, when he was at his peak a couple seasons ago, was an all-NBA defender, all-NBA first team, led the league in steals was getting 23 points per game, like five rebounds, five assists on elite defense, great shooting numbers. He was up near 37% from three and like 48% from the field. If the Heat are adding that version of Victor Oladipo to what they had last year, then that, I mean, that obviously takes the Heat to, the another, to another level. That would be the second best player, at least offensively, that this team has had since the addition of Jimmy Butler. So if they get that version of Victor Oladipo, this is transformational for their team. Right now, he's in a position where he's shown flashes of returning to form, but his efficiency has been low. He's been shooting near 40% from the field and around 32% from three. He is still averaging 21 points a game for the Rockets, but that efficiency is pretty low. One thing he does still do at an above average level is defend. He's still a great on-ball defender. So you have to wonder, is 
the scoring difficulty due to the Rockets' dysfunction and not having any sort of pieces or plan in place for him? Or is it because he just doesn't have the same ability to finish and shoot the way that he did before? We have to see you getting into the Heat system. He's going to be put in a position where he has a great coach. He's going to join the most talented team he's ever played on and be put in a situation where he'll likely be competing in the playoffs. So, and he's also have, have a, an expiring contract. So he has all the motivation in the world to show up for this team because he's wanted to come here. He wants this team to sign him, but he knows he has to perform to get that contract. So he's in a position where he has all the motivation in the world to perform at the best level that he can to earn a contract offer from this team at the end of the year. And for the Heat, they get to take an up-close look at Victor Oladipo, see what he's like and how he fits with their pieces, essentially without risking any long-term assets. They don't have, they don't have to do a long-term deal or trade assets for the future to see what it's going to look like. They're going to get to see it right now. So he does bring um, a different layer to their team that they really do need, that this team has been lacking in, um, in recent times this year. They have been at times a little bit too reliant on three-point shooting on their offense. And when their three-point shot isn't falling, a lot of times they just respond by shooting more threes. And when those don't go in, they get blown out. So they need someone who is a change of pace scorer who can get inside and penetrate and score at the basket consistently and open up better shots for other people. Because if you're not knocking down your threes, they can easily clog the paint. We know that the Heat's two best players aren't necessarily great three-point shooters, and Bam isn't aggressive every single game, and Jimmy can't do it every single game. He's also the primary distributor for the team as well. So getting another scoring option who can be aggressive, get their own shot, and also be counted on to guard on the perimeter, which is also a huge thing for them. They were counting on Avery Bradley to be that uh, lockdown perimeter guy who you could count on to go and guard a quick player on the other team and be able to do it without needing help defense, except he, he hasn't really been able to play this year. So adding Victor Oladipo, they also get that element. At the very least, they get a defender that they can trust to be able to guard a quick perimeter player by himself and not collapsing their defense every time. So I think that for the Heat, this is an A-plus move in every sense of the way in terms of fit, in terms of value. Every aspect of it is perfect for them. So kudos to Pat Riley. And you also, for Victor Oladipo, uh, before he got injured last season, he was having one of his worst seasons uh, in recent years. And following that season this year, between both Indiana and Houston, he's had an uptick. Uh, in a lot of those statistical categories. So he's back above 20 points per game, which he hasn't done since his pretty much best season in 2017-2018. Um, and the other promising thing that I see for him that he could potentially gain from the Heat system is uh, his three-point attempts have gone up. So the most in his career between both Indiana and Houston this year. So he, for his career, averages about 1.6. It's all the way up to 2.8 in, in Indiana and 2.5 in Houston, 2.6 overall in a year. Or that's how many he's making, rather, and his attempts are 7.7 for the year, which is still highest overall. He's 4.6 for his career. So 
I think the guy does want to be more of a traditional two guard in the NBA today and be a three-point shooter, help space the floor, help create offense, while also being that stud defender. And I think you're going to have an opportunity to do that on the heat. So I, I agree with you. Um, I think they're going to unlock pieces of his game. And if they don't, then at least they didn't really give up much to get him. Oh, definitely. For what I've seen, um, I, I've seen that obviously his three-point attempts are up and so are his makes, but his percentage at 32% isn't great. That is actually down. So I think that this is actually going to help him a lot to join the Heat because it seems to me one of the reasons why he's taking so many threes is because he has absolutely no room to get into the paint in Houston because they know other teams are, are basically packing the paint on them because they know they don't have a bunch of great shooters out there. So a lot of times it seems that he's just like settling for that shot and he takes a lot of difficult threes a lot of the time. So I think that going to the Heat where he has other great three-point shooters is going to really do wonders for his shot quality. And I definitely expect for his field goal percentage to go up. I don't know um, if he's going to still be getting 21 points a game because I don't know how many field goal attempts he's going to be getting. I don't think he's going to be getting 19 field goal attempts a game the way he is uh, right now in Houston. But if he can increase his efficiency, he can still potentially be a 20 point per game scorer on improved efficiency on a really good heat team. So good for the Miami heat. Um, another move perimeter player, JJ Redick gets moved to the Mavericks, gives Luka Doncic a little bit more firepower out there in the perimeter. What do you make of that move? I think it's a good move. Um, I think we should expand to some of the other shooters as well that were moved. We had George Hilton to the Sixers and Norm Powell to the Blazers for Gary Trent. Um, and I think all three of those moves uh, were the right moves for those teams. With Redick to the Mavs, I think it, like you said, gives uh, Luka Doncic another shooter on the floor. I think Redick was not being utilized appropriately in New Orleans. You kind of heard that he didn't want to be there with Stan at the beginning of the season. I think he played that in episode four. Um, it was kind of funny the way that he phrased it, but also you got the sense that he really just didn't want to be on that young rebuilding team. Um, so going with a tenured coach like Rick Carlisle, and I think more of a traditional system is gonna suit him more in the later stages of his career. And then George Hill of the 76ers, I, we have been saying that they needed point guard depth. We have been saying that they needed a point guard. George Hill has one of the, been one of the best three point shooting point guards in the league for a long time. Um, I think he fits in the doc system very well. And overall, I think that was a much better trade for them to make versus mortgaging the future with giving up Tyrese Maxey or Maurice Tybalt for Kyle Lowry, like uh, Miss Anujuri was trying to take from them. And then Norman Powell to the Blazers for Gary Trent and Rodney Hood. I felt that Norman Powell um, was the likely candidate of the two to go because he, I felt, did have trade appeal. And then Gary Trent Jr., they weren't going to resign him there in Portland and Rodney Hood, similar story. So um, for the Blazers, Norman Powell, immediate offense came in and I think scored 22 points in his debut. And Blazers fans were already like, let's make a mural of this guy. Let's build a statue for him. So I think that uh, the Blazers fans are going to be very pumped to have Norman Powell for the playoff push. 
Yeah, out of those three moves, I like the Powell move the best. Yeah, the Blazers have, yeah, this move is great for them. Um, the Blazers seemingly always make some small time move around the deadline or in the off season, and it's never really that impactful. Um, outside of maybe the Nurkic signing, I don't really think that they make too many impactful moves. What and do you this mean? one, you don't think Carmelo Anthony was an impactful move. You know what? That one, I'll give them that. That actually was a great move. That was great value. No one else was giving him a chance. Great for them. To take like 14 on, points on off the Anthony. bench. Honestly, yeah, that, that was a great move. I'll give them that. That one was really great. But in general, a lot of the additions are a little bit underwhelming, like Rodney Hood and players of that nature. They really don't add like a really big impact score to the nucleus of CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard. It's always just McCollum, Lillard, hey, you guys go score all the points. And that's basically it. But I think the addition of Norman Powell gives them the third best score that these two guys have ever played with alongside them. He's averaging 19.5 points per game this year. He's having the best year of his career. And he's still pretty young. He's 27 years old. He's an excellent three-point shooter, 43.9% from out there on 6.4 attempts per game. So he gives them a lot of firepower. Whenever Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, if one of them goes down or has a bad game, you have Norman Powell to basically pick up the slack or add to what they're already doing. This team is going to give a lot of teams trouble on the perimeter. And I'm really excited to see how they mesh together. Um, they are three similar type guards. They're all um, six four or shorter, and they all play from the perimeter and are very three-point and deep shot oriented. But I feel like they'll be able to make it work, especially because they play a very smart brand of basketball. They move the ball well. So I think that this gives them a new layer and it raises the ceiling on their team. For Hill to the 76ers, it's like a good move on paper, but I don't think that it'll actually make that much of a difference. I think that George Hill's washed up, honestly. Um, I don't re even remember the last time he played impactful basketball, but it's good on paper if he could be anything like what people say he's like when he's healthy and engaged. But um, yeah, I think that basically this is what they resorted to when they realized that they couldn't get Kyle Lowry. This was basically the move that let everybody know that they were out on the Kyle Lowry trade. Redick to the Mavs, I think, is a perfect fit. I think Redick is going to love playing for a coach like Rick Carlisle, who uh, is a very system coach, very team-oriented coach. They're definitely going to be a team to look out for near the bottom of the West playoff standings. And I think that giving them a knockdown shooter that can consistently give Luka spacing really helps because for the Mavericks, you have players like Josh Richardson that are supposed to be that consistent floor spacer that are theoretically good three-point shooters and Tim Hardaway Jr., but they're actually kind of streaky and they have a tendency to at times go cold um, from game to game. So Luke is the type of player at his best when he has space to drive to the basket and look for shooters, drive, kick game. I think adding a guy like Redick is going to really open that up for him. So great move for them. Another move, point guard swap. We have Rajan Rondo being moved for Lou Will. What do you make of that move? They did right by Lou Will. He gets to go back to his hometown and go, uh, as I said, he's going to, to the get strip clubs. City cakes. <laughs> um, 
And, and Rondo, I, I think it's a, a great move on the Clippers' part. I think they needed somebody who's more of a playmaker than somebody who's a shooter on that team. And so getting Rondo, who historically been one of the better playmakers, and if you looked at him during the NBA Finals last year, he seemed to be a shooter as well, which was odd, um, just given all that he did in Boston, Mavericks, um, and his other stops. Uh, you didn't think that he was ever really a shooter, um, but I think, again, they did right by Will and Rondo. I think they did put him into a system where um, he's going to thrive with those two guys. Yeah, I think the move is all right. It's not too bad. I don't think it's like a super impactful move. I think it's more of a lateral move than an impact move. But I can see why it's somewhat beneficial for the Clippers. I think that the way that it's more beneficial for them is because of what Rondo brings personality-wise. The question is, will he actually bring it? He was supposed to bring that same personality aspect to the Hawks, and he didn't really bring it there. So we'll see if he brings it to the Clippers. But essentially, the Clippers need a vocal leader who's going to be willing to whip the team up into shape, call out assignments on defense, be vocal on offense. If you look at the Clippers for a team that is as talented as they are and is doing as well as they are, they don't talk that much when they're on the court. Kawhi and Paul George, kind of more to themselves type leaders. Kawhi and Paul George who don't talk generally? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So um, they need a voice out there. They need somebody out there who is going to be a vocal leader and whip the team up into shape, get them out of their mental lapses from time to time, rally the troops and get everybody on the same page. So not everybody responds to a lead by example leader. Some guys need that vocal type leader. So hopefully uh, he can actually bring that to the Clippers the way that he was supposed to bring it for the Hawks. For the Hawks, I think they get something because Rondo wasn't really doing anything for the Hawks. So I guess they just figured, hey, uh, we might as well shake it up and see if this helps us somehow. Maybe get some scoring off the bench. So not a bad move for either team. But moving on from the deals that happened, the next thing that you move on to after the trade deadline, of course, is the buyout market. Teams always looking around for people that have been bought out or in the free agent pool to add to their team if they struck out on a certain trade that they wanted to happen. So already some movement in the buyout market since the trade deadline has ended. We've got LaMarcus Aldridge to the Nets, Andre Drummond to the Lakers, the rich get richer, Gorgie Jang to the Spurs, and Jeff Teague to the Bucks. What do you make of those free agent signings? Yeah, the Dang one, to me, doesn't really make sense. I get it that the Spurs are kind of hanging around there, that they may make it to the playoffs, but do they really think that Dang is going to be the savior that makes them go to the finals this year? Like, I don't think so. So it was a bit of a head-scratcher for me uh, why he would go there. Maybe they promised him a lot of playing time on uh, like this, what's appearing to be more of a, a younger or young-focused team. Um for T to the Bucks, that definitely makes sense to me. Um, Teague, I think, was very misused in Boston and didn't really have a lot of uh, good looks playing on that team. And you also have two studs in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, who 
I just think the offense isn't really going to flow through him. And also with the Hawks, he didn't do that well once he was traded there last season from the Timberwolves. Um, he went from scoring like 14 points at the Timberwolves to seven with the Hawks. So I think Tate just needed an opportunity to be on a different team. Drew Holiday didn't really have like a proper backup in the box. So I like that one. Uh, Drummond to the Lakers. You had heard rumblings of this, like that it was going to happen before he got bought out. Apparently Drummond has always wanted to play with LeBron and he felt that that was really going to open up his game. I think it's the perfect move for the Lakers because Marcus All has been terrible this season and Montrezl Harrell has been okay, but I don't think he's been the impact player that they thought he was going to be. And there was rumors that he was going to be uh, potentially traded during the deadline. And then lastly, Lamarcus Aldridge to the Nets, he really spurned the heat in the last, the final moments. It pretty much, with the exception of Shams and Woj, every NBA insider had Lamarcus going to the heat and said it's a done deal, 100%. Yeah, he's meeting with other teams, but it's pretty much just like a front. He's going to the heat as soon as he clears waivers. And then Brooklyn Nets signed Lamarcus Aldridge. So I thought it's a bit confusing. Um, to be honest, for Marcus, I think that uh, he, yes, he's going to go to the team that probably right now is stacking up to have the best opportunity to win a championship. But this isn't going to be a great opportunity, in my opinion, for him to get a, another contract after this. And so if he's going ring chasing, he made the right choice. Um, but if that team gets booted out and he's only playing eight, nine minutes a game and scoring, five points a game, then he's really not going to get out of it. Uh, what I think that he also needed to go to a team for, which is half playing time. Yeah, for me personally, I think that Teague to the Bucks is like basically non-newsworthy. I think that Teague at this point in his career is at that point where he always says, oh yeah, I just need a new situation. Um, maybe a different team or a fresh start will be what I need to get back to being productive. But I feel like at this point, he's just done. Like he's washed up at this point in his career. There's just not really anything that he brings to the table. I think that his prime was like five or six years ago at this point, And he hasn't looked anything like himself. So I don't think that he's ever going to go back to being um, a productive basketball player. Then I look at the Gorgie Jang deal. I have no idea why the Spurs did that, to be honest with you. Like, I don't think that he makes a big difference for their team. And I also don't think that the Spurs are contenders. I think it's kind of like a half-assed attempt at saying, hey, look, we're trying. But at the end of the day, this doesn't make a difference for the Spurs. I don't think that the addition of Gorgie Jang will even make the difference of like not even two games on their record at the end of the day. Um, and I don't think it'll change their playoff seating or the outcome of any playoff matchup that they would have based on his addition. So that one's not really anything impressive. The Drummond to the Lakers deal we had been hearing about. So that one's really not that surprising. It makes a lot of sense for them. They've been hit with injuries. Anthony Davis is still out. Um, LeBron James out three to five weeks. So they definitely had a need for a big man. So they had depth issues. I think that Montrez has actually been solid this year. Um, he's averaging 15 points a game, six rebounds, and has a PER of 24.96 on the year. So it's not that he's been bad. 
It's just that they've just needed more. They have had a lot more injuries than they counted on. So there's that. And for the LaMarcus Aldridge addition to the Nets, I actually thought that the Nets had higher percent chance of winning the title before they signed Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge. And I know that sounds crazy and it doesn't literally make any sense. And I can't explain it to you because everyone's like, oh my God, they're so loaded. They have uh, 41 collective all-star appearances on their team. They are the most star-studded team ever. How can you say that they have worse chances now? It just seems to me like any time that I've seen teams do this kind of thing, it just ends up blowing up in their face. It just ends up not working out for some reason. They end up having chemistry problems or they just mysteriously implode in the playoffs. I just feel like this is going to end up making them like the best team to not win it. I don't know how they're going to find enough playing time for these guys. They already have Blake Griffin. They have Kevin Durant, who's eventually going to come back. They have DeAndre Jordan. They have Nicholas Claxton, who they really like and want to develop. Now that yeah, he's been playing Aldridge. out of his mind with James Harden and that pairing. So that you're now creating a logjam of two guys in front of him. Yeah, so at this point, I really don't see, like, it's almost like the Nets' motivation to signing uh, LaMarcus Aldridge was, like, to play keep away from the other teams because they did not need him or, like, really benefit from adding him. I think this was more so to, like, be like, ha-ha, other teams, you can't have him than it was actually about getting better. But the rich get richer. Who knows? Maybe I'll be wrong. But at this point, I don't really think LaMarcus Aldridge brings that much to their team that they already didn't have. He brings another Blake Griffin-like presence, I guess. But um, yeah, I guess more of the same for them. But moving on from the uh, the buyout additions that have already happened, what are some remaining free agents out there or future buyout candidates that you foresee uh, yeah, we've talked a lot about them, I think, in previous weeks. I think the key one that comes to mind is Marcus Cousins. He posted a video that was about three or four minutes on Twitter showing that he's been in the gym, been in the office, working. He looks healthy. Obviously, it's different than game time playing, but I think somebody's going to give him a flyer that missed out on the Aldridge Drummond signings. For other players who have already been bought out, I think that Austin Rivers is the next domino to fall in all players. Um, he was pretty decent on the Knicks this year. He's, I think, a good role player off the bench. And the Thunder weight and there were talks that he was going to go to the Bucks before the team signing. So I could see a team who's in need of a guard or potentially if there's injuries in need of a guard, then uh, giving Austin Rivers a chance. Yeah, those two names are some obvious ones to be looking out for. I've heard rumblings about Dwayne Dedman making a comeback who, if, I mean, if he really did come back, would probably be a player that would have a lot of interest just because he's played a lot of big time basketball for some winning teams and his skill set is one that would probably be appealing to a lot of teams. And another really interesting name that I've been hearing could be a buyout candidate is Otto Porter Jr who is an interesting player. He is six foot eight, solid shooter from the perimeter. 
Um, his efficiency is not bad, but it seems that he is just really underused or isn't really in his right situation right now. Um, it seems that he could probably benefit from a change of scenery. This was a guy that was a pretty high pick in the first round whenever the Wizards first acquired him, and he had the look of a pretty promising player. He's still only 27 years old. If he were to join the right situation and finally join a winning team, I think he's only exclusively played for bad teams. If he ever joined a good team, he might actually be a solid addition to somebody because he's only 27 years old, six foot eight, great length, solid defender, and really great shooter. So that's another one to look out for, for sure. Um, I don't know about Stephens, but moving on, uh, some superstar leaps uh, we've been seeing. Um, I think the, the big one is Zion Williamson. Um, he now leads the league in true shooting percentage among all players scoring at least 20 points per game. He has scored 20 points per game in 21 straight games before the age 21, which is the most in history, passing LeBron and Luka. He's averaging 29 points on 68% shooting over the last 10, including a career high of 39 on 84% field goal percentage. Uh, some questions. Do you think that Zion is the best 21 and under player ever? And does he have a better career trajectory than Doncic and James? I think that he definitely is the best 21 and under player ever. He has to be. I have never seen a player dominate with this sort of efficiency at such a young age. And a lot of it is to do with just his physical profile. A lot of players, when they enter the league, when they're at a younger age, they haven't fully developed in terms of physical maturity. And as a result, they haven't really reached their physical peak. So their best basketball is usually ahead of them. They usually don't handle contact as well. They usually can't um, score as efficiently around the basket when they first start their career. Even players like LeBron James and Kevin Durant, who, I mean, LeBron James was a pretty physical, impressive guy from the moment he joined the league. And Durant had a size advantage vertically on almost everybody that he played against, but they still were very inefficient um, their first and second years as scorers. Zion Williamson is doing something that we have never seen before. He is putting up the sort of efficiency from the, from the field that would make you believe that this is Shaquille O'Neal in his second year, if you're just looking at the numbers. If you don't look at the way he plays and you just look at the numbers, it looks like Shaq. His field goal percentage is up near 60% almost every single game. He's putting up close to 29 points per game over the last 10. It looks like Shaq's numbers. The difference is when you turn on the film and you watch him play, he's a perimeter guy. He's quick, he dribbles, he's got some passing ability. He can occasionally shoot from the outside. He's shooting 70% from the free throw line on 8.5 attempts per game. So he's at least become an average free throw shooter, which really leads you to believe that he can continue to improve his shooting touch. And it's just amazing when you watch this guy play. He is 284 pounds at six foot seven. I mean, to put that in perspective, Joel Embiid is 280 pounds and he is seven foot. I mean, 
you're telling me that this guy weighs as much as Joel Embiid, but he's as quick and as laterally mobile as a point guard or shooting guard with those kinds of dribbling moves. I mean, this guy takes it, rebounds it on one end, and he's able to just take it himself the whole way down like a freight train. He It doesn't matter how many people jump on him or contact him on the way up. If you jump into him when he's already launched, you just bounce off. You're like a fly in the way of a Mack truck. He just moves you out of the way. There's There's no way to stop him from getting to the basket once he's already launched himself in the air because at that weight, his momentum is just going to keep carrying him to the basket. It's just incredible to see how somebody that can be this heavy is able to hang for that long and get that high. Um, and for him to always take such smart angles to the basket and be able to have the touch to always finish. And then when he doesn't finish it, he also has the athletic quick twitch fiber to do the quick second leap and go up again and get the second offensive rebound and put it back. So even when he makes a rare miss, he pretty much, I think, gets the second rebound almost half the time and he'll just put it right back up. So he is a constant terror offensively and you can't understate what having a player like that does to the other team's defense because it's demoralizing when you don't have a single player on your team that can do anything physically to stop a guy that is that dominant on the inside. And it's just physically aware on you to have to guard a guy like that. Imagine trying to defend a guy that has that much of a size and strength advantage in you all game. It makes you really tired. It probably takes you out of the game offensively too, to have to expend all your energy trying to stop this guy from getting inside. So, I mean, I think the way that he's going right now, his career trajectory, I mean, I know that Luka Doncic, we're looking at another um, surefire Hall of Famer. If he keeps it up and stays healthy, this guy right now puts up all around MVP numbers every year. And Luka Doncic probably has an overall better stat line than Zion Williamson does because um, Zion doesn't do what Luka does with his passing game and with his perimeter spacing. But I think that overall, the efficiency at which Zion scores at is so much higher that you'd have to say that he probably has the best trajectory too, because he's already so dominant at the way that he's scoring that if he were to just improve marginally in the other aspects of his game, I can't imagine what that would do to his overall game. I mean, this guy right now is a pretty one dimensional scorer and he's still scoring 68 or 58% of his field goals at the rim or overall. I mean, that's incredible. So the league already can't stop the one thing that he seemingly wants to do all the time. If he can add just a little bit more to his game, this guy is an all-time great. So I think that he really is going to be one of the best players to ever play, as long as he can stay healthy. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. Um, moving on to everyone's favorite segment, plead their case. I will ask you a series of questions, and you have to plead their case. Where do you go? Let's do it. All right. James Harden recently came out and said that he feels he is the MVP this year. Most of the buzz for MVP is excluded Harden. Leave the case for why he is the MVP. I know everybody's been talking about Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic as the MVP candidates, and rightfully so. Those guys are having monster years. And I think that Nikola Jokic probably still is 
the number one candidate to win it. Overall, his stat line is more impressive. But even though we've seen maybe better statistical seasons from Harden, what's really crazy about Harden this year is how much he's contributing to winning. This man, it seems it doesn't matter who the Nets throw out there with him. He is winning that game. He's a walking triple-double. He has become probably the best player in the game of basketball at reading a defense and then diagnosing it and making the right decision on what to do with the ball based on what the defense does. When you look at James Harden play, he doesn't necessarily do anything that is, you know, like so incredible that no one else can do it. Like, for example, like he's not like flying through the sky and like posterizing people. He has good handles, but they're not the best handles in the league. He's a good finisher, but you wouldn't say he's the best. You wouldn't say that offensively, I mean, as good of a three-point shooter as he is, he's not the best at that either. There's other people who do that better also. But he's just so good at knowing how to leverage his strengths and how to use that and his teammates' strengths to win games. And the Nets this year have had a bunch of different lineups, people in and out. They've had, uh, you know, Kyrie Irving go out for a variety of reasons. Durant's been missing for God knows how long. Um, at this point, it's almost looking like James Harden has played more games for the Nets than Kyrie Irving or James Harden have, which is pretty funny to think. But they're winning. And they're one of the best teams in the league. And clearly the difference has been him. And they're winning more than the Nuggets are winning. So I can see why um, James Harden says that he's the MVP, joins a team. He is the difference when he joins that team. doesn't matter who they throw out around him. They're winning that game. So I can see where he's coming from. Yeah, he's uh, playing pretty much like he did in Houston, hero ball. And he had maybe one or two pieces that were nice pieces, but overall team was like not going to get that those types of minutes on any other team. So I think he's definitely been most valuable. I think the thing that will keep him from winning it is the fact that Kevin Durant and Kyrie will come back at some point. So he's not going to be able to keep those stat lines up with those guys there, and if he sits down for any reason, then Kevin Durant and Kyrie win. It shows that he's not that the most valuable player on that team um, as compared to a Jokic or uh, Embiid, LeBron. Yeah, on. I definitely wonder. Good. Moving on, Rockets GM Raphael Stone addressed his team's recent moves over Zoom call. He defended his trades, said Oladipo was a bad fit, and would do the Harden deal over again 100%. After taking heat for his recent moves, plead the Rockets' case for why these deals were actually good moves. So for the Harden trade, I can defend that one for him. He actually did get a good return on the Harden trade. He did get four first-round picks out of the Harden trade, and he did originally get Jared Allen and Karis Levert out of that trade. So, I mean, I did like that. That was actually a good move. I don't know why he traded Karis Levert and Jared Allen. I mean, if you're obviously going into a rebuild, which it looks like the Rockets clearly are, then you could have probably benefited from some young players that seem to have their best basketball ahead of them. But instead, I think um, 
he went in a different direction and tried to acquire what he felt was a surefire all-star in Oladipo. And I think that the miscalculation was he didn't realize that Oladipo probably wasn't going to want to stay with the Rockets, number one. And number two, probably didn't realize that Oladipo's trade value around the league had dropped significantly due to the fact that he was a former all-star and he hasn't really been healthy in recent years. So um, that was the misstep he did. I can understand why he traded for Oladipo because if he was the healthy all-star version, then it made sense. But um, that's obviously not the version that he got. So I can understand the Harden deal, the Oladipo trade. I mean, that was just terrible. I, I really can't defend or excuse that one. You essentially trade a former all-star who at this point can be at least considered a B-level player for nothing, for just for free, pretty much, which would be almost having done the same thing as having done nothing at all. At least then they wouldn't have made fun of you. But he got essentially bullied on this one. There's just no way to, to get around that. You could have definitely gotten something for Victor Oladipo, like something. If he wouldn't have been so stingy about what he wanted for him earlier in the deadline, I'm sure he could have gotten some return. But this one was just inexcusable. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think that they should have, if they wanted to, like I said, be the uh, poor man's Sam Presti, had um, kept Jared Allen and Paris Overt and potentially flip them at the deadline. They would have gotten more of a haul, but I agree with you on both fronts. Moving on, Kevin Durant left Golden State to show the world that he could win a championship without a super team. No cupcake, Kevin. He is now playing for a Nets team with a collective 41 collective all-star appearances. Plead his case on why winning a championship with the Nets will give him more legitimacy than his championships with Golden State. Uh, you know, I really do feel for our friend Cupcake Kevin. Um, he is obviously Twitter's favorite. They've recently found and re-exposed a tweet that Kevin Durant put out um, a couple years ago when Kevin said, now everybody want to play for the Heat and the Lakers. Let's go back to being competitive and going at these people. And here he is on probably the most star-studded team in history. I guess what I can say to defend him is this time he didn't plan it that way. It's not his fault. He didn't know he was joining such a loaded team. To be fair, I mean, when he joined the Warriors, he knew that he was joining a championship team um, that had already won 72 games without him. So you knew that he was definitely like just championship coattail chasing, just riding on the back of that team. He didn't join a championship team this time. This time he joined a team with Kyrie Irving only. And at the time he Don't was- Don't forget about considered... DeAndre Jordan. <laughs> Starting right, a four year, 40 million deal with the Nets, come on. Exactly, so, I mean, let's be real. When Kevin Durant, first joined the Nets, nobody was talking about the Nets as being champions. Poor Kevin couldn't have possibly imagined that during his time there, they would then go on to pick up 
<laughs> James Harden, LaMarcus Aldridge, and Blake Griffin, and he would end up essentially locking himself into the same situation he ran from all over again. He couldn't have possibly known that. If anything, I feel bad for Kevin that it seems that he will never be able to show legitimacy in his career. If he wins this one, they're just going to say it again. Well, of course you won. You should have. You got. You guys had everybody. It's going to be the same argument as when he was at Golden State. Yeah, and if he loses, then everyone's going to say, wow, Kevin, you suck. How did you lose? You had everyone. Basically the same thing as it would have been with Golden State. So he leaves Golden State to get away from that sort of situation. And he... Right. And he unknowingly basically just goes into that same situation again. I honestly just feel bad for him. Yeah, I... The, the problem with everybody talking crap about Kevin is he is on a team that is trying to get better. And like, while he may have wanted James Harden, I'm sure he wanted a million other people and the GM was just able to pull off the trade for James Harden. So um, that's honestly just good front office management is being able to pull off a deal like that to that guy. Cause it wasn't like, James Harden signed there. He gave up and mortgaged their entire future to win right now. And it seems like it was a good move. So I think it's different than Kevin, like you said, making his choice to go already to a super team that beat him the prior year in the finals. Nets were decent, but they weren't that good um, before Kevin Durant and Kyrie got there. So I think uh, it'll be a bad stain for him and especially for James Harden, if they can't win a championship there because you have two of the stars with three rings combined. Um, but if they are able to win, I think when you look back, if they win three titles and Kevin Durant has five titles, nobody's going to go, well, all of those come with an asterisk. They're going to call him the five. I think they champion. totally will, man. The, do you not see the way they treat this man on Twitter? They will definitely say that about him. What do you mean? Nah, I think he still is. Regardless of being if he won a championship, he'd be a first ballot Hall of Famer. But I think regardless of that, that is for sure. I I think regardless of these championships, like they're championships at the end of the day, doesn't really matter. Like at at this point, does anybody call LeBron's first two championships bad championships because of uh, winning them in Miami with Wade and Bosch? No, those were different though. They created something. They were never considered. The oh, favorites and also <laughs> they weren't as stacked as this team. Fine, but there's gonna be some other team that comes up like Luca is gonna team up with Zion and they're gonna be like, oh my god, the best two guys in the league now are are doing exactly what their peers did before. And now Luke I really hope that never happens unless but it's I, for my team. But I'm just saying, like some other team's gonna come up with come along, do the same exact thing where they all team up and they're going to be like, oh my God, the sanctity of the league and blah, blah, and everything. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Fine, and people are going to forget about it. In the end, people remember the championships. True. All right, well, with that, that is the end of our podcast. Court is adjourned. I'm Eric Gonzalez. And I'm Mike Stern.